You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. It's a crisp, clear evening, three days before Christmas. The sun has just sunk beneath the bare winter tree line of the Massachusetts hills. The workday is almost two hours ended, but downtown is still full up, with late holiday shoppers in the stores and on the streets, with diners in the restaurants. There's already so much to remember about that evening. A light dusting of snow upon the roofs and signposts, the smell of warm spiced nuts from the vendor on the corner, the tinkle of carolers wassailing down a quiet street. Here, a young couple walking arm in arm catches eyes beneath a street lamp and the flash of first love strikes in an instant. There, a frozen pond plays host to a boy's first hockey goal. A young girl's first taste of brandy. An old woman's first hint of death. It's December 22nd, 1909, Worcester, Massachusetts. And there's already so much to remember about that brisk winter evening even before the lights appeared in the sky. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Airship. At 6.45, the first people to look up from Wooster into the evening sky thought what they were seeing was a star. That impression didn't last long. The light was too bright. More importantly, it moved. As the minutes ticked by, more people noticed and people noticed more. The diners stood from their tables and emptied out onto the streets. The shoppers stopped mid-stride. Carriages were stalled. Streetcars abandoned. Homes vacated. It was a searchlight scanning the evening sky, but not from the ground. Behind the light was a long, black object floating maybe 1,500 or 2,000 feet in the air. The thing circled Wooster over and over. People called the police. People called the fire departments. People called their friends and their neighbors. And in droves, they came outside, more of them every minute, to look up at the airship, which was looking down at them. The spotlight would turn on occasion towards the ground, throwing cold white light on the curious crowds, who would gasp and scream and choke, unsure how afraid they should be of being an object of the airship's attention. After a few buzzing circles above Main Street, the ship turned towards the northwest and quickly disappeared behind the hills. The people of Wooster climbed to whatever greatest height they had available to them, trying to keep an eye on it. Five minutes later, it returned over the hills and back to the center of the city, where it again scanned the people and buildings with its powerful torch as the humming engine rang out all across town. Then it took off again, this time out to the southeast. When the ship did not return this time after five minutes, there was some disappointment, but many of the people kept their eyes peeled. 
From the top of the State Mutual Life Insurance Building, the tallest in town, and from the hills, whatever vantage they could find. An hour went by. The number of sky watchers diminished. Another hour, and the sober people of Wooster began to ready themselves for bed. Then the hum returned, and the light, too. The airship was back. It swept again over the city, making lazy circles and even stopping above the State Mutual Life Insurance Building before finally heading off over the horizon for good. It was impossible to get a clear look at the airship. It was dark, and its spotlight blinded witnesses. Some reported wings, some reported propellers, some a canvas bag. And when the incandescent eye turned away, and the ship was shown in relieved tableau before the gibbous December moon, the eagle eyes in the State Mutual Life Insurance Building said they could see two men working in the rigging, one of whom, they presumed, was Wallace Tillingast. December of 1909 was both the confluence of two stories and the climax of two stories. Each of them dates back to time immemorial, and they've been entwined before. The story of mankind's desire to fly, and the story of mankind's belief in flying things. For the first few millennia of human experience, both of these stories remained fairly static. The abstract dream of soaring through the skies, and the nightmare of being carried off through the same. What most people know about the history of manned flight begins at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in 1903. Think about it. What dates or places or names can you recall in the history of avionics before the Wright brothers? Did you just mutter something about Leonardo da Vinci? That's okay, don't be embarrassed. It's totally reasonable to mutter something about Leonardo da Vinci. But unfortunately for Leonardo, he didn't really accomplish anything for flight. He drew some stuff. He had some ideas. They didn't work. The end. Relative to the field, however, da Vinci's forays into heavier-than-air flying were stirringly, stunningly successful. Because unlike most of the people to try to tackle the problem over the ages, Leonardo didn't fall to his death. The reason you don't know anything about aviation before the Wright brothers is because there wasn't much aviation before the Wright brothers. The earliest attempt at human flight in the written record is of King Bladud of Troja Nova, now London. Bladud probably never actually existed. Nevertheless, in 852 BC, so the story goes, he used his magic to consult with the dead, from whom he learned the secret of soaring. He fashioned a set of wings out of wax and feathers, affixed them to his back, leapt from the Temple of Apollo, and, in the words of Geoffrey of Monmouth, was dashed into countless fragments leaving his son, Lear, to inherit the English crown. Whether Bladud was a real person or merely a myth, and very probably the latter, he set an unreachable bar for fellow flyers for thousands of years to come. Nobody did any better than Bladud's faceplant in the nearly 900 years between his jump and the death of Christ. Nobody did any better in the first millennium, in medieval times, or the Reformation, or the Renaissance. Not in the Sung Dynasty, or the Yuan Dynasty, or the Ming Dynasty. Not until June 4th, 1783, when the Montgolfier brothers first filled a hot air balloon, did anyone make any progress of note on one of the most fundamental and universal endeavors of the human imagination. And not until George Cayley forced his butler onto a glider in 1853 did a person succeed even slightly in winged flight. In thinking about the extensive research they had conducted, Orville Wright wrote, 
so many attempts to solve the flying problem started with the same idea and stopped at the same point. Most of them resulted in little or no advance over what had been done before. To my mind, Sir George Cayley was the first of the important pioneers. Leonardo da Vinci was a wonderful genius, but I cannot think of anything he contributed to the art of human flight. But after Cayley, the doors began to creak open. After his designs, William Henson put together an evolution named the Aerial Steam Carriage. The Aerial Steam Carriage never flew, for a positive carnival train of reasons, not least of which was that the iron steamworks produced far too little power and far too great a weight. Still, things were headed in the right direction. Otto Lilienthal paved the way for the Wrights through a series of hang gliders he built, flew, and experimented with from 1891 up until August 9, 1896, when his glider hit an updraft and the nose raised almost perpendicular to the ground. The glider stalled and fell 50 feet to earth. Lilienthal's spine was snapped. He lingered on for barely a day before he died. Even those first famed flights at Kitty Hawk were disappointingly modest in the grand scheme of things. On the first, Orville had lasted just 12 seconds and gone 120 feet. The same day, Wilbur managed to make 852 feet in just under a minute. But that's not much compared to the glider flights of Lilienthal or dozens of others. There was a sense through the 1880s and beyond that manned flight was nearly here, but that sense failed to solidify until well after it was true. There was a strange, cloudy mix of credulity and disbelief. The Wright's flights didn't quite light the world on fire. Many others were already claiming far more impressive successes, and all of those people were liars. My best friend in the whole world, Louis Gathman, who... Well, go back and listen to the Fool Killer series if that name doesn't mean anything to you. Louis Gathman had claimed to fly his aero car for four hours. Louis Gathman was full of it. But because of people like him, the Wright brothers suffered both by comparison and by a once-bitten, twice-shy mentality in the media and public. If a couple of Ohio bike builders really were the first ones to fly, why weren't their flights more impressive? By the time the world came around to the greatness of what they'd done, they were doing greater things. In less than two years, the brothers had built the Wrights Flyer 3, and in October of 1905, they got it in the air for nearly 40 whole minutes, traveling 24 miles. From there, the benchmark started moving. Other early aviators, spurred on by the Wrights, made their own accomplishments. Alberto Santos Dumont became the first European to fly. Glenn Curtis set a series of speed records. But these were still minor bumps on the road, Curtis's high speed was shy of 47 miles per hour, and Santos Dumont's first flight was even shorter than Orville's first one in 1903. In October of 1908, the Daily Mail published a publicity stunt. They offered a 500-pound prize to anyone who could fly across the English Channel before year's end. Nobody did, so they extended the deadline through 1909 and doubled the pot. The publisher of the paper, Lord Northcliffe, was hoping to attract the Wright brothers, but Orville had recently been injured in a crash, putting them out of commission. That left it to Louis Blériot and his Blériot 11, a rickety wire-framed monoplane with a motorcycle engine that tended to explode if run for more than half an hour. The flight from Calais to Dover should take around 40 minutes. Louis took off just after sunrise at 4.41 in the morning. He didn't have a compass or an altimeter or any instrumentation whatsoever. Midway across the channel was a French destroyer called Escopette, which was also headed to Dover. 
If Blériot could follow the Escapette, he'd be golden. But the weather was rough and the Escapette was slowed by high seas. The Blériot 11 couldn't afford to stay behind, so it passed the ship and promptly got lost in the rain. Luckily for Louis, the water cooled his overheating engine, allowing him to reach Dover and crash land there. He'd been in the air for 36 and a half minutes. His flight was the final shake of the champagne bottle. It was obvious to everyone, governments, engineers, the press, and the public, that the world was poised on the brink of a seismic shift. Aviation wasn't going to be a curiosity for long. Any day now, someone would develop a practical, reliable aircraft capable of flying great distances at extended periods. The only question was who would have the inspiration and the perspiration to get there. Wallace Tilling asked, had neither. Because the man who was seen in the rigging of the mysterious airship above Wooster was not a part of the first story, the story of flight, but of the other one. When did humans first dream of flying feels almost like a Zen Cohen, which came first, the chicken or the wing. But the genesis of the other story must be somehow even more primordial. When did humans first see things in the sky? Even setting aside the things that were birds or the things that were comets or meteors or planets or stars or bats or bugs or any of the generally explicable things that might invade the night air, the answer must still date back before dating. In Livy's Ab Urbe Cordita, he refers to a number of portents that came to Rome in the winter of 218 BC. First, a six-month-old freeborn infant had been heard to suddenly scream, Triumph! Then, an ox had managed to climb to the third story of a house. When the owners noticed, they let out a cry, and the startled ox threw itself to the ground. And then, a number of, and this is a direct translation here, phantom ships had been seen gleaming in the sky. In chapter 35 of Naturalist Historia, our old pal Pliny the Elder says that a spark fell from a star in 76 BC. As it fell, it grew until it was the size of the moon, shown as through a cloud. Then it returned into the heavens. On April 14, 1561, the skies were apparently chock-a-block with colorful shapes, red semicircles, black triangles, blue globes, and black rods, all of which began fighting with each other above the stunned citizens of Nuremberg. There are more fuzzy reports of abstract geometries hovering or darting around the air. But just as with the history of aviation, the history of unidentified flying objects doesn't truly come alive until the end of the 19th century. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I mean, aside from the obvious right now? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist at your convenience in a safe and private online environment. BetterHelp isn't self-help. It's professional counseling that's available to you anytime and as quickly as 24 hours after signing up. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if it's not working out. 
and they're more affordable than traditional offline counseling, with financial aid available to boot. And because BetterHelp's counseling is online, it's available worldwide, and offers a broad range of areas of expertise that might not be available to you locally, including licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, sleep issues, LGBT matters, grief, family conflicts, and more. As always, BetterHelp is not only affordable and professional, but also confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The first airship sighting came on November 17th, 1896. At 20 till 5, it showed up above Sacramento, California. Much as in Wooster, 13 years later, at first onlookers only saw a light, in this case an arc lamp, making its way southwest across the city. Also, as in Wooster, people's descriptions of the craft were uncertain and various, but many witnesses said they heard people in the rigging, talking, laughing, and singing. One said that when the ship descended to a low 50 feet altitude, he had called up towards it and asked, Where are you headed? San Francisco before midnight, came the reply. Five nights later, it was sighted in the city by the bay by several San Franciscans, including a police detective. Just after it disappeared into the fog, a lawyer named George Collins rang up the San Francisco Chronicle to explain. He claimed he was in the employ of a wealthy inventor from the East Coast who had built the airship. It was, according to Collins, carried aloft by wings, not gas or hot air, which flapped to provide elevation. He wouldn't divulge the name or location of either the vessel or its inventor, but said they were both hiding out in Berkeley and would show themselves to everyone in the whole of San Francisco in six days, when they would fly straight down Market Street. Two days later, Collins came forward again, this time to deny everything he'd previously said. His client, Dr. E.H. Benjamin of Maine, came forward the next day to say that he was a former dentist and inventor, yes, but only of dental tools. Another day later, William Henry Harrison Hart stepped forward to say that George Collins had been fired, and he was now representing E.H. Benjamin DDO. On the one hand, this seemed like quite a get for Dr. Benjamin. William H.H. Hart was a very prominent attorney, having served as California Attorney General in the 1890s. 
On the other hand, Hart seems to have been a wild and addled prevaricator about whom next to nothing is known apart from his own fabulous tall tales. According to Hart, Benjamin was doing a hard 180. Yes, in fact, he was the inventor of the airship seen above Sacramento and San Francisco. Furthermore, he'd built three of them, and the planes would soon be sent to Cuba to fight off the Spanish. In the meantime, they kept flying over San Francisco, attracting more and more attention. It seems like everyone in town eventually caught a glimpse, up to and including the mayor, Adolf Sutro, who said he'd watched one fly over Alcatraz, through the Golden Gate, and out across Seal Rock. They were sighted on the 24th of November above San Francisco and Sacramento, and Eureka, and Placerville, and Santa Rosa, and Sebastopol, and Modesto, and San Jose. The next night it was seen in Ukiah, Merced, Watertown, and Los Angeles. After another week or so buzzing nearly every city, town, and dairy barn in California, the mystery airship, by now there was only one of them again, began floating east. By January, it was seen over Texas and Arkansas. In February, it flew over Nebraska and was said to hang around Omaha for weeks. Then came Springfield, Missouri. By the 10th of April, it was hovering over St. Louis, Chicago, and points around the Midwest from Leroy, Kansas to Kankakee, Illinois to Ames, Iowa, all at once. After that, it seems to have pretty promptly disappeared. So too did Dr. Benjamin. In fact, and you're not going to believe this, I can't find any record to substantiate the existence of the good main dentist inventor outside of reporting on the airship incidents. But if not the good doctor, then who was behind the airship sightings of 1896 and 1897? The most likely and obvious answer is that the whole thing was a newspaper hoax that went awry. The day of the first sighting, the Sacramento Bee somewhat inexplicably ran a telegram which said a traveler was headed from New York to the city by quote, aerial transportation. A number of the professors and scientists quoted in articles from California to St. Louis defy all Googling. And on top of all that, a curious portion of those articles make comments about reporters writing from mental asylums and the like. There are also more credulous reports of pranksters launching fire balloons throughout San Francisco to trick the already primed public into taking them for airships. But strictly speaking, it doesn't have to have been a hoax. Dirigible airships existed in 1897. Solomon Andrews had built a couple all the way back in the 1860s, which he hoped Abraham Lincoln would use to win the Civil War. Charles Renard and Arthur Krebs launched La France in 1887, and Ferdinand von Zeppelin was well on his way to floating his eponymous ships by the time California saw the lights. Not long before the wave of sightings, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge had introduced a prize of $100,000 to whatever inventor could supply the United States with a flying machine, an incentive that cut both ways, stoking the imaginations of aviators and skygazers alike. In the moment, the finger was pointed at any great number of hypothetical culprits, both specific and general. Even Thomas Edison was named a suspect, which he flatly denied. But then again, wouldn't he? Whether there really was an airship, no, or three, no, 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 or if the whole thing came down to bad reporting and public panic, almost definitely, my point is that we can't put a name to the airship sightings of 1896. And that makes them very different from the New England airship incidents of 1909, which are very solidly attributable to one Wallace Tillingast. <laughs> 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. There isn't much known about Wallace Tillinghast. Before December of 1909, he has virtually no footprint, and not after, either. The two things about him that we can and should say before moving on are as follows. One, he was a respected businessman, vice president of a Wooster steam fitting company. Two, he did not build, nor fly, an airship. What we also know is almost precisely when and how Tillinghast carried off his hoax. Yet the why is terrifically elusive. That negative space allows us a little room to play. Was this a bizarre and serpentine money-making scheme? Hard to see how it might have done that. Was it a simple prank that went out of control? It's possible, but it doesn't seem like the man had humor in mind. What if, instead of avarice or japery, we instead assume that Wallace Tillinghast did what he did out of another base human feeling? Boredom. Let's imagine a dinner party, yet another dinner party, in the neighborhood of Mr. and Mrs. Tillinghast. They arrived promptly at 8, as the invitation requested, and, after the initial pleasantries and introductions, the couple were separated into their gender-appropriate gaggles, Mrs. Tillinghast in the drawing room, Wallace in the pool hall. The clanging of cue balls, the smell of cigars, the taste of whiskey. Wallace had a constitution for none of it. Yet the worst of it, and he knew this in advance, was yet to come. After one of Henry's rollicking laugh lines, which rhymed <laughs> goddess with bodice, the room fell into a brief but terrifying silence. Wallace could feel the next beat coming, but he had no way to divert it. Sure enough, a man from down the block looked up from the table in shirt sleeves, sighed, and asked the dreaded question. So what do you do, Richie? It was even worse than he had feared. It had begun at Richie Howe, who Wallace knew to be a criminal defense attorney, meaning that he not only had great stories to tell, but the gift of how to tell them. As the inquiry bounced around the room, things only became more bleak. Henry was a novelist, unpublished yet still. He felt a slight relief when Bill announced he sold real estate, but that instantly transitioned into him talking about the time he walked into a property, only to discover a raccoon with a toupee in its mouth being chased around the kitchen by a shirtless, bald-headed drunk, screaming, Don't do this to me again, Pickles! <laughs> when the laughter died down, the silence reestablished itself. More awkward this time. All eyes were on Tillinghast. He bought a moment, playing dumb. If they wanted him to embarrass himself, they'd have to ask for it point blank. And so they did. How about you, Wally? Asked Bill. Oh, I'm a vice president at Sure Seal Manufacturing. <coughs> ah, replied Bill with a single smiling nod. The pull of a cigar, the clink of ice in glass, a silence so near to complete as to be even worse. After a long moment, Henry cried out of the corner of his mouth, Don't do this to me again, Pickles! <laughs> Laughter. The moment was mercifully gone. There would be no follow-ups, no anecdotes, and better for it. Wallace Tillinghast knew 
what everyone else in the room suspected, that the answer only got more boring the longer it was drawn out. After dinner and dessert and digestifs and a few round of Mrs. Callingham on the piano, Mr. and Mrs. Tillingast made their way home. Did you hear the Knox boy didn't make it into Wharton? she asked. Mm, he said, almost as if to her. I never bought the shine on him, if I'm honest, she continued, leaving spaces for her husband to interject between each clause. Everyone's always talking about how bright he is, how nice, what a talented swimmer. But you remember the incident where Mary caught him in the compost heap two or three summers back? Well, there's just no dressing something like that up. A boy, pantsless, in a box of sawdust and eggshells, is at his truest self. Don't you think? Nothing. It was like playing squash in an open field. Then, as if it was perfectly in keeping with the train of thought, Wallace Tillinghast grumbled, straight ahead, into the distance, a simple sentence. Just five words that he'd said many times before, mostly as a child, when almost all children say the same. I wish I could fly. Wallace Tillinghast then worked out a way to make his wish come true. Not the way King Bladud did, or the many tower jumpers who tied flippers to their feet, covered themselves with feathers, latched plank wood wings to their backs. Nor did he draw and think an experiment like da Vinci, or build toy air screws that could be tossed into the air with the rubbing of palms. He didn't make balloons or gliders or wind tunnels. And he didn't take a mess of spruce and bike chains and a small gasoline engine and make an improbable craft that would break the surly bonds of Earth and rise, if only a short ways, on a beach near Kitty Hawk. Instead, Wallace Tillinghast made a story. On December 12, 1909, he contacted a reporter at the Boston Herald to tell it. He had built, he said, the world's first reliable, heavier-than-air flying machine. It was, he said, 1,550 pounds, 72 feet across, and of the monoplane type. Unlike most others, the crew and passengers rode a top-tilling S-plane, on deck like a boat. It had an acetylene gas spotlight. It could fly higher, longer, and faster than any other aircraft ever constructed. 150 miles per hour, 5,000 feet in elevation, hours upon hours of flight time. Perhaps the part of Tillinghast's description that most stands out now is the propulsion. The main means of power for the Tillinghast aeroplane were a proprietary 120-horsepower gasoline engine, Wallace said. But it also had a backup, what the man called an auxiliary yaw, a set of masts, spars, rigging, and sails. The world's first, and last, sail-powered airplane. Asked for proof of this astounding claim, Tillinghast offered more story. On September 8th, three months before, he and two mechanics had pulled the secret ship out of its hangar in the dead of night so as to avoid detection, and flown from Wooster all the way to New York City, where they circled around the Statue of Liberty, climbed to a height of 4,000 feet, and cut the engine. There was an irregularity in one of the cylinders, you see, so while the engineers set to fixing it, Wallace sailed the plane silently around Fire Island for 46 minutes. Once the engine was ready to go again, they made steam for Boston, then finally back to Wooster without having had to land once. The next day, Tillinghast's story was carried on the front page of the Boston Herald under the headline, 
tells of flight 300 miles in air. There were initially two schools of reaction to the news, amazement and skepticism. One of the loudest voices of the latter camp was Frank Lamb, the American Army's first certified pilot. At the time Tillinghast's story was bouncing from paper to paper, Lamb was trying to drum up belief in the future of commercially viable air travel, both with heavier-than-air planes and dirigible airships. He was giving a speech at the Aero Club in Detroit when one of the attendants interrupted to ask, What do you think of the story that Wallace E. Tillinghast of Wooster went to the Statue of Liberty and back home? Without a blink, Lamb answered, The story is a lie. It is not worth serious consideration or comment. Wilbur Wright went arguably further, saying the reports were too palpably absurd from the first to take seriously. A few days later, though, the skeptics were eating crow. Almost immediately after publication of the article in the Boston Herald, some sightings were noted. E.B. Hanna came forward to vouch for Tillinghast, saying he had seen an airship circling the Statue of Liberty for an hour the same night as Tillinghast claimed to have done so. Others wrote in to say that they had seen what at the time they believed to be meteors or comets or planets, but now believed to be the secret plane. Then came the fresh sightings. On December 20th, it was seen by an immigration inspector over Boston. On the flight above Wooster, three days before Christmas, more than 2,000 people saw it. The next evening, 50,000 poured out onto the streets of Wooster and its adjoining communities to watch the airship fly. On Christmas Eve, it was seen over Boston by thousands more as it crossed northward towards Willimantic, where it hovered over the city for a quarter of an hour. That same night, it was seen over Lynn, Massachusetts, on its way to Salem, and back again, over Marlborough, Ashland, South Framingham, Natick, Grafton, Upton, Hopedale, Northborough, and back again to Wooster, where Wallace Tillinghast made his home. The Boston Post wrote a snide rejoinder to the cynical Frank Lambs and Orville Wrights of the world, headlined, People laughed when inventor told of trip to New York. The body of the article documents the thousands upon thousands of witnesses confirming the ship. But oh, 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 who's got the last laugh now? It was all working as planned for steam-fitting Vice President Wallace Tillinghast. The reporters flocked to his home and business, where he would partly demur. He insisted he didn't want the attention, had never sought the attention, then do his best to appear begrudging in lapping it up. He would head out of the office and onto a train away from his house and out towards the country. Are you going for the airship? The reporters would ask. That's nobody's business but mine and my mechanics, he would answer gruffly with a serious scowl. Then, once he was alone on the train, the scowl would break into a smile. He had a feeling in his stomach, a mixture of nerves and joy and disbelief. He opened the window of his sleeping car and stuck his head out to feel the icy breath of the New England December pounding against his face. This, he knew, was how it felt to fly. He staked out places to stay undercover so that the journalists and fans staked outside his home would note that he had not returned the whole night. At first light, he would cut through the line of voyeurs in the yard, his hair blown back, his face windburned. No comment, he would bark as he slammed the front door behind him and again let out a giddy laugh. With the airship being seen all across New England and all evidence confirming it was Wallace Tillinghast at the helm, the press multiplied, 
they fanned out across Wooster and beyond, searching for the secret hangar that housed the airship. One reporter, who attempted to sneak into a barn on the outskirts of town owned by Tillingast's business associate, was arrested for trespassing and took that as a sign he must have been close. Every story has a shape, an arc, a rise and fall. The lovers prevail. The schemer is discovered. Hubris is punished. Virtue rewarded. Fortunes reversed. Mysteries solved. When it comes to stories of flight, one shape dominates. From Icarus to King Bladud, on into the present and beyond, the moral is predictable. What goes up must come down. After Christmas, the tone of the coverage began to shift. The eminent French sociologist Charles-Marie Gustave Le Bon was cited as chalking up the sightings to mass hysteria. The Globe, who just two days before had been happy to report on the credibility of the ship and the witnesses thereof, now said that Boston and Wooster were in danger of becoming the laughingstocks of the world. H.P. Lovecraft wrote that he had been present for the sighting in Providence, Rhode Island, and had recognized that the supposed airship was in fact the planet Venus. Many others concurred. A prankster by the name of Mr. Rawson out of Wooster said that he had been tying lanterns to the legs of captive owls and releasing them to mimic a flying machine, which is nearly as ludicrous an assertion as Tillingast's, but didn't do the fake aviator any good all the same. By New Year's, there were hardly any new reports of the airship, and those that were published were broadly derisive. As for Wallace Tillingast, his phony aversion to the press quickly transmogrified into a real one, as the questions awaiting him in his yard turned critical. He holed himself up with his family in the house, avoiding windows, skipping work. And once the heat died down, he returned again to his uneventful life as VP of Sure Seal Manufacturing. He never again spoke about his airship, never snuck out of town to spend nights on trains with his head out the window. Here we have one last choice to make about how to tell this story. We can confidently guess that when he returned to his workaday life, he was met with ridicule and criticism, that for years he was the subject of jokes, that his impeccable, if humdrum, reputation was forever tarnished. But is that a lesson learned or a price worth paying? To go from someone who people ignored at dinner parties to one that tens of thousands of people, from Wooster to Boston, Marlborough to Providence, Lynn to Salem, craned their necks to look for in the cold night sky and wished so hard to see that they convinced themselves they did. Music for today's episode by Kevin McLeod, Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Vare, Gilbert Vinter, and the President's Own Marine Band. Special thanks go out to our patrons, especially Adam, Catherine Schrader, Kelly S., Per Morton Barstad, John, Daniel Smiley, Nathaniel Homan, Ryan McCurdy, Dan R., Carolina, Chris Lindstrom, John Andre, Oin Finnerty, Carl Hanna, and Sean Walters. I'm thankful to all of you who've stepped up to support the making of this show in these tough times. If you'd like to join those people, go to patreon.com slash the constant. Or if you're not in a place to put money into the constant's creation, please consider spreading the word. Go to constantpodcast.com to find our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram presences. Like us, review us, and share this episode to anyone you think might appreciate it. 
We're a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Ministry of Ideas, who are back for a fresh season, which begins with a deep dive into climate change denial and how two seemingly at-odds belief systems enable it, Protestantism and postmodernism. Be safe out there, take care of yourselves and each other. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where on July 21st, 1919, the airship Wingfoot Express caught fire above the skies of the loop and crashed into the Illinois Trust and Savings Building. This has been The Constant. Midway across the channel was a French destroyer called Escopete. Ah, the French. I just don't know their language. I finally got Wooster right, though. Does somebody want to give me a little credit for Wooster? (sighs) Pronunciation. It's just so embarrassing. Escopet. Escopet. Really? Huh. Okay. Fine.